You remember last week in our study, we were looking at Acts chapter 2, and we were talking about the terms of admission into the kingdom of God are still the same. And I want to pick up with that theme tonight in our study as we look again at Acts chapter 2 and then Mark 16. And one of the things that I want to mention tonight in our study, our goal is to try to the best of our ability to look at what the Bible has to say. What we're trying to do is look at what the Bible has to say, properly exegete the the text or the passage, and then provide adequate application. And so during the course of our studies, I would invite anyone to make sure that whatever we say harmonizes with Scripture. I would also encourage if you have questions, if there, are, if there are things that are said over the course of this next year as we look at some of these key verses, if there are things that you don't understand, if maybe you need better clarification, please feel free to come to me and talk to me. I'll be happy to do, to do my best to give you a biblical response. And so tonight, let's look at Acts chapter 2 again. I said a moment ago, we do want to welcome our visitors. We're always grateful to those of you who visit us from week to week. We had a great morning this morning. Miss Tassiana was baptized into Christ. She has been visiting the church here at Isla Branch for several months now. As a matter of fact, at our prayer breakfast yesterday morning, she was present. And so she's always present on Tuesday mornings for our class. She is a very sweet lady, and we welcome her into the work here at Isla Branch. All right, in Acts chapter 2, we have as we have noted in previous studies, the Apostle Peter and the other apostles proclaiming the gospel for the very first time in all of its fullness. In Acts chapter 2, we have a record of the beginning of the church of Christ. Prior to this occasion, everything pointed in the direction of the establishment of the Lord's church. In Acts chapter 2, we have the establishment of that church in the city of Jerusalem, And that occurred about 2,000 years ago, and it occurred in harmony with what Isaiah and Daniel foretold centuries earlier. So in Acts chapter 2, when we look at our text, first and foremost, we read about people who were convicted. They heard about the death of Jesus Christ. Peter preached the crucified and coronated Christ. As a result of hearing that message, they were convicted of sin. And we talk about the power of God's Word. The Hebrew writer said the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, after having heard the gospel being preached, they cried out to Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, Not only do we read about their conviction, but their conversion. And as I think about their conversion, as we noted last week in our study, we read about the command that was given. When you look at the command to the people, it's very simple, isn't it? First, as we said last week, there is the authority behind the command. And so listen to what Peter said in the first century. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
We have said in previous studies that when you do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that means to do it by His authority. Now Paul taught in Colossians chapter 3, Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're doing it by His authority. And by the authority of Christ, Peter and the other apostles commanded those people on Pentecost Day to repent and be baptized. He points out the aim of this command. Listen again to what he said. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now you recall last week in our study I mentioned that in the standard manual of the Baptist Church, penned many years ago by Mr. Hiscox, he wrote, and this is what he had to say on page 22, It is most likely that in the apostolic age, when there was but one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and no differing denominations existed, the baptism of a convert by that very act constituted him a member of the church, and at once endowed him with all the rights and privileges of full membership. In that sense, baptism was the door into the church. I think he's exactly right. In the first century, there were no other denominations. There were no denominations. They didn't come until about the 1500s. And so he's right in that respect. Furthermore, he's right when he says that baptism was the door into the church because that's what Peter taught, isn't it? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. But now consider what he says, and I quote, Now it is different. Unquote. I said last week, and I'll say it again, who gave him, who gave them the authority to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God? The fact of the matter is, no one has given them that liberty. No one has the right to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. And why is that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority. And Peter, preaching on Pentecost Day, Peter said, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of, by His authority. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So let's just think for a moment. Let's say I want to become a member of the church that I read about in the Bible. And I, wanna, I want to submit to the oracles of God. Wouldn't it stand to reason I'd go back to Pentecost Day and go back to the very point and time, point time when the church began? I would look at the terms of admission into the kingdom of God and I would see that when they complied with this, they became members of the church. And so if I did what they did in the first century, then I will become what they were. And what was that? Members of the church. Pre-denominational, non-denominational, just a member of the body of Christ, the church of Christ. In other words, the church that belongs to Christ. Now I want to read for you a statement because as we think about what Peter commanded in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. To repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In MacArthur's study Bible on page 1630, 1637, John MacArthur writes in his notes relating to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Here's what he has to say with regard to the phrase, for the remission of sins. There, ha there has been a lot of ink used in days gone by 
over the Greek preposition for in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. In the original, the term is ice. And typically what those in the religious world teach is that people are baptized because they've already been saved. Not that they're baptized to be saved. So listen to what MacArthur has to say. This might better be translated because of the remission of sins. Baptism does not produce forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Is that what Peter said? He said the reality of forgiveness precedes the right of baptism. And he cites verse 41. Now that's not what Peter said, is it? Is that what you read in, in your Bible? Listen again, Acts 2, verse 37. Verse 38, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now I can read of the compliance of these people to the command. Down in verse 41, the Bible says, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. Those who received the word of God when it fell, as Jesus said, on good and honest hearts, what did it do? It yielded fruit, didn't it? They responded favorably to the gospel. As a result of that, they enjoyed redemption or the remission of sins. He goes on to say, Genuine repentance brings from God the forgiveness or remission of sins. And he cites Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Now look, I've been reading Ephesians 1, 7 for a long time. And I don't read anything connecting... Well, I don't read anywhere in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 that baptism is negated from the redemptive process. The redemptive process involves faith. Faith in whom? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. The redemptive process also involves repentance from sin. Repentance of sin. It's what Peter commanded. Paul on Mars Hill, in Acts chapter 17, he said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34. And then to confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And then we are baptized into Christ so that we might enjoy the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Now I want you to think about what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And note, if you would, the equivalent to this in Matthew chapter 26. Turn back with me. In Matthew 26, we have Jesus having instituted the Lord's Supper. And here's what he had to say about the blood that would be shed. In verse 27, he took the cup gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That is an exact equivalent to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, isn't it? Now what MacArthur and others want to say is that Greek preposition means because of. In the New Testament, 1,750 times that preposition is used. 
It always looks forward in scope. It never looks backward. Never. Now think again about what Jesus is saying. This is the blood of the new covenant. All right? Are you saying then, Jesus, Jesus, that you are shedding your blood because we've already been forgiven? Is that what he's saying? Absolutely not. He is shedding his blood so that we might enjoy the forgiveness of sins. The same is true in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When we are baptized into Christ, it is then and only then that we enjoy the forgiveness of sins. So, if Acts chapter 2, verse 38, if you were to translate that preposition, because of, then what you're saying is 1,749 times, that preposition always looks forward in scope, but this one time, it looks backwards. That's not honest, is it? It's not honest at all. So, again, you've got to be objective, open-minded as we say, and go to the Scriptures and ask the question, okay, what does the Bible have to say about the matter? And the fact of the matter is, when we talk about baptism into Christ, that is what puts us in contact with the grace of God and the blood of Christ. God's grace is located in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. The only way that the Bible tells us that we get into Christ is by being baptized into Him. When we are baptized into Christ, it's then that we contact the blood. And by the way, we have to be baptized into Christ to contact the blood. And in order to contact the blood, we've got to go where it was shed. It was shed in death, John 19, 34 and 35. So when we're baptized into Christ, then we contact that blood, and then our sins are what? They're washed away. I want you to see something else. Turn now to Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, in verse 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Let me read for you what MacArthur has to say about Mark 16, verse 16. First, he contests whether or not the latter portion of Mark 16 ought to be in the text. And there are many able scholars that have talked about the genuineness of Mark 16 and following. Here's what he says. Even if verse 16 is, is a genuine part of Mark's gospel. Now listen. It does not teach that baptism saves. Now think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. Jesus just said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And He just waved it off. He just said, and I'm quoting, It does not teach that baptism saves, since the lost are condemned for unbelief, not, and not for not being baptized. Well, let me ask this question. 
If I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God, will I be lost or saved? Kind of a mute point, isn't it? Why would he have to say, he that believes not and is baptized not shall be condemned? Look, if you don't believe, then the bottom line is you're lost, aren't you? He didn't have to say, he that believes not and is baptized not shall be condemned. He didn't have to say that. That'd be redundant, wouldn't it? Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to him. How important is faith in the scope of things? It's absolutely essential, isn't it? And how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In Mark 16 and in Acts chapter 2, we have what are called coordinating conjunctions. So listen now to what Jesus said. He who believes, number one, and is baptized, number two, will be saved, number three. That coordinating conjunction and there links both belief and baptism to salvation. They are equals in that sentence, are they not? Just like in Acts chapter 2, when Peter links repentance and baptism for the remission of sins. They are equals in the sense they carry the same weight. So what Jesus is saying is, those who believe and are baptized, they will be saved. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. Did those people believe in the resurrected Christ? Yes, they did. Did they believe that Jesus had been put to death on Calvary? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. So Jesus here, when He said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mr. MacArthur said, that baptism does not save. Remember we talked just a moment ago about the authority behind the command? Who was it that said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved? Who was that? It was Jesus, wasn't it? Does he, have, does he have authority? Does He have all authority? Look at Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, In verse 18, Jesus said, All authority, some translations say all power, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the apostles they would be endowed with the Holy Spirit. And He said in verse 8, You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So, Acts chapter 2 comes, the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance, and the gospel began being preached in all of its fullness. People were saved on Pentecost Day, and from that time forward, people were being added to the body of Christ as a result of the preaching and teaching of the first century saints. So look at Acts chapter 8 for a minute. In Acts chapter 8, we have the gospel moving beyond Jerusalem and the region of Judea. We find the gospel going down to the city of Samaria. In Acts 8, a great persecution swept the early church. Luke said that 
the disciples were scattered abroad with the exception of the apostles. In verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and preaches Christ to those people. All right, drop down if you would and look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. What was the kingdom of God? That's the church, isn't it? Isn't that the institution that Daniel foretold of in Daniel 2.44? Isn't that the same divine institution that John the Baptist said was at hand in Matthew 3, 1 and 2? Isn't it the same institution that Jesus said was at hand in Matthew 4, verse 17? The answer to those questions is yes, yes, yes. So now we have Philip in Samaria. He's preaching about the church, the kingdom of God. And then note, he also preached the name of Jesus Christ. Would that not have had something to do with the authority that rested in the Lord Jesus? Everything that he had to say about the church in terms of admission into the kingdom, would that not have been in conjunction with the authority of Jesus? As a result of his preaching and teaching, note the results now. Both men and women were baptized. Well, why were they baptized? Number one, to be saved, Mark 16, 16. Number two, they were baptized to enjoy the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Number three, they were baptized so that their sins might be washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. Number four, they were baptized to become a member of the body of Christ, the church. Acts 2, verse 47, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Number five, they were baptized so that they might enjoy the benefits of the cleansing blood of Jesus. And that, and that blood continues to cleanse all who are in Christ. Now drop down if you would. And note in verse 26 and following, we read about a eunuch from Ethiopia. He was a treasurer to Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had been to Jerusalem to worship. I would take this to mean that he was a proselyte to the Jewish religion. He's been to Jerusalem. He's on his way back home. He's reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the one who would come and bear the sins of many. And so when Philip heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, verse 30, he asked this question, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? He asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And then in verse 32 and 33, we read of the, of the text taken from Isaiah 53. The eunuch then asked Philip, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. When we talk about preaching Jesus, we're talking about preaching that is cross-centered, isn't it? We're talking about that which is Christ-centered and cross-centered. But it is also baptism-centered, isn't it? Well, how do I know that? Well, listen to what the text says. Philip opens his mouth, beginning at that scripture, preached Jesus to him. As they went down the road, 
They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Did you read anything in the text about Philip talking to him about New Testament baptism? Silent as the stars in heaven. Not one word explicitly stated in the text, right? So, wouldn't you infer that in preaching Jesus, in preaching about the Savior of the world, and the fact that man has a problem with sin, and the remedy is the blood of Christ? So you talk about the redeemed, the redemption that's in Christ, the fact that Jesus died, He rose again, He's ascended into heaven. By His blood we are saved. He is the source of salvation. He is the singular person who can save. And then when you talk about, okay, here's what you need to do to become one of His children. Didn't Jesus say, go therefore make disciples of all the nations? Well, how are you going to make disciples of all the nations? You're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to teach them to observe all things. So here's a man. He hears the gospel. He believes the gospel. And what does he do? He responds in an obedient faith. Having said that, turn over to Acts chapter 18 now. In Acts chapter 18, we read about the Apostle Paul in Corinth. In the city of Corinth, in verse 11, the Bible tells us he spent some 18 months teaching the Word of God among those people. In verse 8, the text says, Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and what? And were baptized. All right, so when they were baptized into Christ, what occurred? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, He said, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But he said, you were washed. The washing that he's talking about here is a reference to being baptized into Jesus Christ. Why were they baptized into Christ? To contact the blood of Christ. So that they might be added to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the washing of water with the Word. Again, a New Testament reference to baptism. But now note, if you would, they were washed, but they were also sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. You remember Paul when he wrote to the church at Cor, or rather at Colossae. He said in the long ago, that through their obedience to the gospel, they were delivered out of the power of darkness. They were translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. God set them apart for Himself, didn't He? They were set apart from the world unto God. And so now they belong to God. So Paul says here, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything that they did to enjoy the benefits and blessings of salvation 
were done in response to or in submission to the authority of Jesus. Nothing was done outside that realm. To be justified simply means to be acquitted. The basis upon which our sins are forgiven is the blood of Christ, isn't it? So when we obey the gospel, it's then. As a matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul, in writing to the church there, said that they had been delivered out of the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, and he said it's in that sphere that they enjoy redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So then, do people enjoy the benefits and blessings of salvation outside of Christ? Absolutely not. Can people enjoy the benefits and blessings of salvation outside the church of Christ? No. Why? Because the blood is inside the body, isn't it? And those who are baptized are placed in the body of Christ. So to be in the body of Christ is, is to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the blood. Now look over in chapter 6, verse 19. In verse 19, when we obey the gospel, I said a moment ago that we're sanctified, set apart. Paul said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God? He said, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. The price of our redemption was the blood of Jesus, wasn't it? He said, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we obey the gospel, God lays claim to us individually, doesn't He? What Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is, look, through your obedience to the gospel, you now belong to God. Turn over to, or rather to Hebrews chapter 12 now. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 23, the writer said to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. In the Old Testament, God said the firstborn belonged to Him, didn't He, in Exodus chapter 13. He said whatever opens the womb, whether male, whether man, or beast, He said it is mine. Those of us who have been baptized into Christ, who have obeyed the gospel, we are among the firstborn. What God's saying is, you belong to me, you're mine. And then He said, who are registered in heaven. So when we're baptized into Christ... Our names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. As a result of being in the Lamb's book of life, we live in hope of life eternal, don't we? So you're saying then that those who are in the church, that is the blood-bought body of Christ, their names are in the Lamb's book of life. That's exactly right. How do I know that? Look at, well, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, and look at Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus surveys the church at Sardis. And in verse 5, he said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Those who were in Christ and those who were, a member, who were members of the church at Sardis, at that point in time, their names had been recorded in the Lamb's book of life. In the book of life, as Jesus said. And if they remained faithful, their names would remain in that book. If they failed to live in compliance to His Word, what would happen? Their names would be blotted out. Look, when we talk about New Testament baptism, it's really not that difficult of a subject to understand. The problem is, too many people go into a study of New Testament baptism, and their thinking has been tainted. They have been 
prejudiced towards the truth of God. I have no doubt there are many, many people in our world today who dismiss the importance of New Testament baptism. I've read to you statements to that effect. But when you read the Bible, there is absolutely no mistake. God commands it. The apostles preached it. Those in the first century, they were receptive to it. As a result of that, they became members of the body of Christ and they enjoyed the blessings of eternal life. If we want to enjoy those same benefits and blessings, then we have to do what they did. Sometimes we talk about the apostles' doctrine. Very quickly, our time's gone. Look at Acts 2 again. Not only do we read about the conviction of those people, the conversion of those people, but also the consecration of those in the first century. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The rich association that they enjoyed in Christ. They were people of like faith. And when we, want, when we look at the Scriptures to be people of like faith, we've got to obey the same message, don't we? They were faithful to the Lord. They were faithful to His teaching. And they enjoyed fellowship in the Lord. They were richly blessed. Look, there are a lot of things that we could say about the subject, and I know that we, we've talked a lot. And I hope that what has been said tonight, as well as last week, I hope that it helps you to see with clarity what the Bible teaches on the subject. Many of the people that you're going to talk to, whether it be at work, at home, at school, they're going to dismiss the importance of baptism. They're going to wave it off. And really what we have to do is call people back to the Scriptures. To simply speak where the Bible speaks. And that's our goal. That's our aim. If you're here tonight and you've not responded to the Gospel, my, my encouragement to you would be to obey the Gospel. To do what they did in the first century to enjoy forgiveness, freedom from sin. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful to His cause, won't you come home? Let God pardon you once again. Enjoy God's second law of pardon. Be back in fellowship with His people, with the Lord, and enjoy the hope of life eternal. Won't you come as we stand and sing?